Turn in your Bibles to uh, Galatians chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4, we, we, if you're a guest with us, we're working our way through that book. And um, we've reached chapter 4, verse 21. It's on page 974. Now today, we're going to look at a paragraph that's um, kind of complicated, uh, not real straightforward. And uh, it would, really would help if you have your Bible open. We want it open every, every Sunday, but uh, especially today. Get, get a Bible. There's one in the back of the seat in front of you, page 974. We're going to go from Galatians chapter 4, verse 21, all the way through chapter 5, verse 4. <clears throat> but what I'm going to do, I want to start down in chapter 5, verse 1. And look at that one. It says, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand therefore, stand firm therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Now what's interesting about this verse in the original language that the New Testament was written in, in Greek, there's the word the in front of the word freedom. And you don't always have to, when you're translating from the Greek into English, you don't always have to put the, the word the into English. Sometimes you do, sometimes you don't. Most of the English translations of this verse have left the word the out. But it, I think it's helpful to leave it in here for a minute and, and, and see that the verse says this. It says, for the freedom, Christ has set us free. For the freedom, Christ has set us free. So in all that has been written in Galatians since chapter 1, and which we've been studying since January of this year, the Apostle Paul has been leading us up to, the, to this point and to the issue of freedom. And it's through the lens of freedom that he looks one last time at the false teaching that the Galatians were getting caught up in. And by doing so, the Apostle Paul, of course it's by the movement of the Holy Spirit on his life, he is highlighting the marvelous truth with which the Galatians were getting foggy about. They were getting foggy about it. For the freedom Christ has set us free. So what I want to do this morning is to look at this passage by asking three questions. Three important questions about our freedom in Christ. So I'm going to ask each question and then I'm going to try to let this passage answer it, answer it for us. And the first, the first question is, uh, what am I set free from? It says, for the freedom... Christ has set us free. He set you free. But, well, what am I being set free from? Well, if you go back to chapter 4, verse 3 to 7. You got that? I'm going to read verses 3 to 7 again. We already looked at it. And as I read it, I trust you'll remember some of what we learned when we looked there. It says, In the same way, we also when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. 
So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. You notice up there in uh, verse 3, it's saying that we were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. And when we looked at that in more detail back then, we realized that those elementary principles of the world... Uh, in one sense can be described as the mentality that I can earn my acceptance with God. I can do that. But when I have that mentality that I can earn my acceptance with God, then I live under the bondage of having to satisfy God by my efforts. And I'm driven by the inner realization that not all is right between me and God. And that inner realization and feeling that, you know what, I'm not so sure God is happy with me, that occurs in my conscience. It's in my conscience that I feel that conviction, that accusation that not all is right. And yet, you see, there's a bondage because I'm thinking that I can make things right with God, so I'm trying to do it while on the inside my conscience is telling me not all is right. And that, my friend, is pointing to what we are being delivered from. We, Christ came to give us a freedom, and that freedom primarily and fundamentally, fundamentally, is a freedom from being a slave to my own unclean conscience. I want us to think about that. Trying to fulfill the law, God's law, as the way to be accepted by God, in other words, to have God be happy with you, that produces a slavery. Your conscience tells you that all is not right and no matter how hard you try to do the right things, you fail and your conscience is still accusing you. In Titus chapter um, 1 verse 15, it says this, To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving. So this is now, it says, To those who don't believe, you haven't believed in Jesus, Nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. Our consciences are defiled. They're unclean. We feel dirty before God and we're afraid because he's the judge. It may seem a little odd for me to quote Carl Jung. He was the father of analytical psychiatry. He certainly uh, wasn't professed to be a Christian in any way. Um, but he said something interesting about the conscience that I, I think he was hitting on something that was true. He said this. He said, through pride we are ever deceiving ourselves. But deep down below the surface of the average conscience is a still small voice that says to us, something is out of tune. <laughs> something is out of tune. That's the way he put it from his experience with people and counseling people. But this out of tuneness is a sense that when I am held accountable for my life by God, I will be found lacking. And then, when you add to this inner accusation the concept that if I do things well enough, I can make this creator judge happy, you are now a slave. How much good 
do you have to do to make God happy with you? Anybody got the answer? And if you manage to do that much good, but then in a moment of weakness, through selfishness, you hurt other people, how much good do you then have to do to overcome that hurt? You know the answer? How much is it? And what if the good that you do, uh, well, first of all, what is the good that you have to do? And what if you do 90% of it, not 100%? Is that okay with God? Have you gained some kind of acceptance with him? And if it is, why is my conscience still unsettled? You are a slave and you will live your whole life under that burden. And perhaps you've seen people like this. You've known people like this. They work their whole lives long to make themselves acceptable to God. And yet they never know. They're never sure if all of their work has been good enough. It's a terrible way. It's a terrible way to live. And by the way, um, this is a tangent as I do sometimes. It's a planned tangent. But several weeks ago, Pastor Felty, I believe, is the one that introduced it to us, this book about 30 days of prayer. And, and lots of you went and got all the booklets. Uh, it's where during the month of Ramadan, when the Muslims are doing their 30 days, we, we pray for the Muslim world on those 30 days. And so I just wanted to remind you, those of you that took this, uh, it started yesterday. So if you forgot, it's okay. You can catch up real quick. But we want to pray every, every day for 30 days for the Muslim world, and this helps us do it. Why am I mentioning this? I mention it because think about um, the religion of Islam and the slavery it puts on people. Because, you see, it's a system where you've got to do things good enough in order to be accepted by God, and yet you're never sure that you've done enough good and so you keep, you're under the bondage. You're under this bondage. And isn't it really true that, but that at its, at its heart, that's what almost every religion is. It could be Islam, it could be another religion, it could be another religion. There are systems where you, it's up to you to do enough good to make things right, but you never know. So you keep trying and you're a slave. But hey, it's not just other religions. It's even forms of Christianity that have drifted away from the gospel and forgotten what the gospel is. Now when I begin to talk this way, I want to make it very, very clear that I, ha I am under no delusion that the Bible Fellowship Church is the only church that has things right. I don't believe that for a minute. There's, God is way bigger than any one church. So that's not what I'm saying. That's not where I'm going. What I'm saying is there are churches scattered across the landscape of America, of the Lehigh Valley, that once in their history held the gospel very clearly in their minds so they were in agreement exactly with, with what God is saying in the book of Galatians. But today they've drifted. 
And what they proclaim you couldn't even recognize in the book of Galatians. It doesn't even fit. And they've drifted into some sort of morality where you've just got to do what's right and be good. And they're doing exactly now, what, well, in principle, exactly what Paul is speaking against here in the book of Galatians. You are trying to earn your acceptance with God by the way you live. And that is slavery. And your unclean conscience tells you that. But now, if you will, turn, keep your finger in Galatians, but turn to Hebrews chapter 9. It's on page 1006. 1006. Hebrews 9, beginning at verse 13. Because there we're told about the conscience. And in this great passage in Hebrews chapter 9 and 10, which looks at the death of Jesus Christ and what it accomplishes in our lives, it's very instructional because it speaks of the conscience right in the center of explaining the meaning of what Christ did on the cross. It's a comparison, of course, between the Old Testament sacrifices and what Jesus did on the cross. And we pick up the discussion in verse 13. And it reads like this. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, Purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. You see, he was saying the Old Testament sacrifices kind of did something on the outside of the person, but the conscience wasn't cleansed. But Jesus Christ in his death on the cross, it says the blood of, the, of Christ, there he offered himself, it says, the, through the Spirit, he offered himself to God. He was taking care of the problem that God had with you. God ha had to punish you for your failures and Jesus says punish me instead of him punish me instead of her and so he satisfies that we've even sung that already in the songs we sang he satisfies the wrath of God on our on our account and now we have a cleansing of our conscience the freedom of conscience comes from the offering of Christ to God and your faith in Christ is what gains you this freedom. It's not your doing of anything. It's your believing that gains you this cleansed conscience. And when you regard the death of Christ the same way that God regards it, your conscience responds with joy and a sense of freedom and relief. I hope, I hope you hear this. I really, really do. I'm not using lots of fancy illustrations. I'm not telling Africa stories today. I'm just telling the, you the truth. I, I hope you have ears to hear that if you're struggling with your conscience, the way for you to have a clean conscience is to count the death of Christ the same way God the Father counts it. 
to look at the death of Christ and reckon it exactly the same way that the Father reckons it. And once you do that, you realize that Jesus, in God's eyes, Jesus settled all the accounts of of your sin. He settled it all. It's done. It is finished, is what he cried on the cross. Amen? And when that dawns inside of you, and in faith you believe that, immediately there's a change in your conscience and you realize, I'm clean, I'm free, I'm forgiven. And now, everything after that in your walk with God, everything after that is just a response of joy and of love. You're no longer trying to earn anything from God, you're free. Amen? And that, fundamentally, that's the slavery from which we're being set free, we're we're being liberated, and that's the freedom. We're free to live with a clear conscience before God. Now, there's a related freedom, though, because remember, we're still asking the question, I'm being free from what? There's this freedom for, free, for the freedom Christ has set us free. But freedom from what? So freedom from an unclean conscience. But that's related to, very quickly, a freedom from being a slave to my sinful desires. Listen as I read to you John chapter 8, beginning at 31. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So, if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. There is a slavery to our own sinful desires that we all experience. And then there is a freedom that God brings into our life to to give us the ability by the power of his spirit to begin to live free from patterns of of sin that keep us bound up. But this freedom is secondary to the other freedom, the freedom of having a clear conscience. And it's built upon that foundation. And as we get into chapter 5, the Apostle Paul begins to talk more openly and directly about this freedom from, from sinful desire. So we'll save that conversation till later. But the one point I would like to make is this, that, that um, many people look at at their own lives and maybe this is you you look at your life you see patterns of sin or failure in your life and you're di- you're disappointed with that you want to change and you begin to try to fix yourself you begin to focus on i got to change in this way or that way but while you're doing that you're not standing on the firm foundation of a clear conscience before god So the freedom, the fundamental freedom of a clean conscience, you don't have it and you're trying to tackle the secondary freedom of changing my lifestyle in a way that's right. You'll never never win. You're, You're bound to lose. You've got to get this first. Amen? 
You've got to be able to stand before God with a clear conscience. And when that is, when that is done, then the changes that need to occur in my life and the way I'm living, the patterns of sin that need to be put off and the patterns of righteousness that need to be put on, then that can happen. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. It's, it's, it's just true. And, I, and if you have questions about this, talk to me or talk to someone because it's so, it's so important to get this. Okay, second question. Second question. Where does this freedom come from? So this freedom that we're having and for which Christ has set us free, where does it come from? And the answer, in short, is it comes from trusting the promise, not by keeping the law. I get this freedom by trusting the promise. One last time, the Apostle Paul is going to hit this. He's been getting at this since chapter 1. And he's gone at it, especially in chapters 3 and 4. He looks at it first from one angle and then another. There's one last angle from which he's going to attack this problem. And, and I want you to see this. I was tempted to kind of skip over this quick. It's the story about Hagar and Sarah. And it gets kind of complicated. But the more I looked into it, the more fun I had. And I thought, why rob you of the fun? <laughs> so now you're going to have to really pay attention with this one though. But it's fun. Look now at chapter 4 verse 21. I'm going to read 21 to 31 verse at a time and make comments on it. Okay? And I hope, I hope you get it. And uh, it, it's going to be fun. Verse 21. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? Now you remember that the, the false teachers prided themselves in being descendants of Abraham. And they were the ones that had this high value on the Old Testament law. That's what they pointed to. So now Paul is going to turn the tables on them and he's going to point to the law and he's going to show them what it actually teaches about being a descendant of Abraham. You with me? Great. Three of you nodded your head. Okay, good. <laughs> Verse 22. Now more. For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman, and one by a free woman. Oh, interesting now. What Paul is, is reminding them. Yeah, Abraham had descendants. But there were descendants from two mothers. If you don't know the story, let me read you a few verses from Genesis 16. Verses 1 to 4. And you remember that for a while, Abraham and Sarah's names were Abram and Sarai. And then God changed their names later. So it's the same people I'm reading about. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, 
took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. In other words, now Hagar is looking at, with contempt upon Sarah. This is recording what happened. It's not condoning what happened. It's saying this is, this is what happened. It wasn't right, but that's what they did. So now, again, verse 22. Paul's saying it's written that Abraham had two sons. One by a slave woman, that's Hagar. And one by a free woman, that's, that's um, Sarah. But we haven't gotten to that in the story yet in Genesis. So Paul introduces the fact that the descendants of Abraham came from two mothers. And he emphasizes the fact, get this now, that one of the mothers was a slave and one of the mothers was free. This is really important. Now, verse 23. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. When it says they was born according to the flesh, it's just saying that, that the, the arrangement with Hagar was wrong. It was men and women taking things into their own hands and coming up with their own ideas and just doing what was wrong. It was just according to the flesh. But, but God gave uh, Isaac to Sarah. That was amazing and that was by promise. If I go to chapter 17 of Genesis, verse 15, God sent an angel to Abraham and Sarah. And God spoke to Abram through the angel and he said this. God said to Abraham, As for Sarai your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. By the way, this is about, about 13 years after Hagar had born her child who was named Ishmael. So Ishmael is already about 13 years old. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of peoples shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is ninety years old, bear a child? That's what he's thinking on the inside. He says, This can't be. So what does he say out loud? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. I've got a son by Hagar. Oh, that Ishmael would be the one. And God said, No. But Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. So now, again, look at verse 23. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. These two women's sons were born in two different ways. Ishmael by following the flesh, Isaac by responding to God's promise. It was a miraculous birth, not like the birth of Christ in which no man was involved in any way between Mary and Joseph. Mary was a virgin. But this was miraculous in that God enabled a 100-year-old man and 90-year-old woman to, to, um, to conceive and have a child. But they were responding to the promise of God. Now look at verse 24. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women, so he says, he says, listen to this, these women are, represent two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. 
So now you see, Paul is going to give an interpretation of these events. Now these were literal events and they were real people. It's not a made up story. But the events correspond to a significant spiritual meaning. Look at verse 25. Now this is where the Jewish people of the day, their, the, the synapses in their brains started firing all over the place and their brains started to explode at verse 25. 25 is where everything goes crazy. Listen to what he says. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem. For she is in slavery with her children. What's being said here is there's two, the two women represent two covenants, two arrangements between men and, and God. Mount Sinai, that's in Arabia, by the way, where the Arabs are, who are the physical descendants of Ishmael. Mount Sinai corresponds, he says, Mount, to the present Jerusalem, the actual physical descendants of Sarah. How can this be? How can you say <laughs> that the Jews are actually the descendants of Hagar? That's what he's saying. The spiritual descendants of Hagar are the Jewish people. And that's completely flipped what everyone is thinking. How can that be? And there's, here's the answer. It's because they are living in slavery. They are in slavery to the law as the means by which to be justified before God. They are therefore, because they are living in the slavery of trying to earn their acceptance with God, they are the spiritual descendants of the slave woman. Not the physical descendants, but the spiritual descendants. Look at verse 26. But the Jerusalem above is free. The heavenly Jerusalem is free. And she is our mother. You see, the heavenly Jerusalem is our mother. And it is the heavenly Jerusalem that corresponds to Sarah. Then verse 27. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor, for the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. You guys getting into this yet? <laughs> Some of you are yawning. I got to wake you up. He's just quoted a, a verse from Isaiah 54. And it immediately reminds us of the angel's appearance to Abraham and Sarah and the promise that she would bear a child. But there's something else going on here. In Isaiah 54, it is a prophecy that is given to the Israelites who were taken away to Babylon as captives. So the barren one, okay, is the physical nation of Israel at that time. They were a conquered, humbled nation forcibly moved off their land, powerless in the middle of a far country. And they looked like a, a barren woman. But Isaiah urged them to rejoice because one day God was going to bring about from them many people. They would no longer look like a barren woman. They looked like a, a woman with many, many, many children. Now this was partially fulfilled when the Israelites eventually returned to their land. But here in Galatians, Paul is implying that the spiritual fulfillment of this prophecy is in the church. It is in all those who believe in Jesus. 
And so it is today. The number of people around the world and throughout all the centuries who have become spiritual children of Sarah is much greater than any could have imagined when the Israelites were trapped in Babylon and it's much greater than the number of physical descendants of Sarah. The barren woman has borne a multitude of children and I am one of them. And so are you if you believe in Jesus Christ. So then he gets to verse 28. Now you brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. You see here he's driving home the point by naming names. He says you, Isaac, you, you are the believers. Whether you are Jew or Gentile, it doesn't matter. You're a believer. Isaac, that's the child of Sarah, the child of promise. So he's saying, now you, brothers and sisters, like Isaac, you're the children of promise. It's not, the, it's not a physical Jew. It's, it's you, spiritually, have you believed in Jesus Christ? I'm going to skip 29 and 30. I'm going to pick them up next week and go to verse 31. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. We believers are Sarah's spiritual descendants. We are children of Sarah when we come by the way of promise, not by the way of law-keeping. And so the question isn't, are you a descendant of Abraham? The question is, who's your mama? It's true. Who's your mama? And these guys who were pushing this false teaching into Galatian, the Galatian church were saying, you got to keep the law. you got to keep the law. That's the way you're going to be made right with God. But that introduces you into slavery. And as a slave, you're a son, a spiritual son or daughter, a spiritual descendant of the slave woman. You're actually the spiritual descendant of Hagar. She's your mama. But when you go to Jesus Christ and trust him and allow him to cleanse your conscience and set you free, now you are the spiritual descendant of Sarah. She's your mama. And that's what he's saying. So the question you remember is, I know some of this is confusing. This twisted my mind all over the place all week. And so you you might have to go back and read this paragraph over a couple times, but this is what's being said. But the question, remember, is that we started with was where does the freedom come from? And the answer is the freedom comes from the promise, not from the law. Amen? You're a child of the promise. The freedom comes from the promise, not... You could say it this way. The freedom comes from promise believing, not from law keeping. Now, number three. How important is it? This this is the last question. How important is it that my faith then is only in Jesus Christ? Got the question? And the word only is really, really important. How important is it then that my faith is only in Jesus Christ. Look at verses 1 to 4 of chapter 5. For the freedom Christ has set us free... Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. 
I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he's obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. How important is it that my faith is only in Jesus Christ? It is all important. He makes the point three times that it's either Jesus alone or, or no Jesus at all. In verse 2, he says, Christ will be of no advantage to you. If you're going to add law-keeping to faith in Christ, you're going to say, yeah, to believe in Jesus is good, but I've also got to keep the Old Testament law, God's law, in order to be right with God. If you're going to add that to Jesus, he's saying, no, then Christ is no advantage to you. Verse 3, he's saying, look, if you're going to do that, then you've got to follow all of the law. And then verse 4, he's saying, you're severed from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. I don't know how much more serious he can sound. He's making a point. You can't add anything to Jesus. Let him stand on his own. By the way, in these phrases here in verse 4, you know, like you've fallen away from grace. Some people bring into that the question, whoa, does this mean that you can lose your salvation, you can be saved and then lose it? Listen, it's so clear to me now, when you read the whole thing, when you start with the Hagar and Sarah story and you come down through and then you get to this first part of chapter 5, you realize that Paul is not talking about that question. You're bringing a question to the verse that the, Paul's not, the writer isn't talking about that. He's not talking about losing your salvation. This is about who's your mama. No, seriously, this makes sense. This is about who's your mama. If you're going to trust in the law, you're saying, I'm not Sarah's child, I'm Hagar's child. You can only have one birth mother. Amen? You can't have two mamas. You can only have one. That's what he's saying. So who's your mama? You, you want to follow the law? Well, then you've just declared. You are a spiritual descendant of the slave woman. You're going to live in slavery. You're, you're severed from Christ because that's where you've aligned yourself. Are you going to trust in Christ? Well, then Sarah's your mama. She's the free woman. You're free. You're clean because it's Christ. But you can't put them together because you can only have one mama. You know, I used this illustration back in, uh, in January when we were in chapter 1. And when we were there in chapter 1, I used it. And when I did, I used this illustration. I jumped to, to over here to verse 3 in chapter 5. I, jump, I, I know you guys remember this exactly. I jumped right over here and I used this passage. Now, many months later, we've reached this passage. So I'm going to do this again. Because I, I hope you, you see it. So over here on this side, this is us. And over there on that side is God. And we want to get to God. How is it that we can get to God? And Jesus, he is sent. And he, he'll be represented by this beam, okay? This solid beam that surely is able to hold my weight. Amen? And so the question is, so that represents Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross by dying in my place.
And I'm called upon then to trust in him. And so if I trust in him, which by the way does not mean that I sit back here and say, yeah, he looks trustworthy. That's not trusting. Trusting is trusting. Where you step, you put all your weight on him. And now I trust in Jesus Christ and Jesus cleanses my conscience and I am now free with God. Amen? But the people uh, in Galatia and people today who live under under some law and they're living under this elementary principle of the world is that I can make myself acceptable to God. They're trying hard and hard and hard. So they add something else. We'll use this. They add it. They say, yeah, I believe in Jesus, but I think I've also got to contribute to this by doing well and doing good so that I can make myself acceptable to God along with Jesus. I mean, he died for me, but I've got to do it too. So they lay their good works, their law-keeping on top of Jesus and say, now that's going to get me to God. But what this passage has said is, who's your mama? You, in your mind are thinking that you are adding your, your ideas and your works. You think you're adding it to Jesus. But what's actually happening is that you are declaring that Hagar's my mama and Sarah isn't. So you think you're adding it to Jesus... But God reads your heart and he's saying, no, you're not. You're rejecting Jesus. You're saying Jesus wasn't enough. And you're actually trusting your ability to keep the law. This is what you're trusting. And when you trust this, is disaster. You don't make it. You can't make it. And besides, while you're trying so hard to make it, you're living a life of slavery and your conscience is not clear. Why not instead just say no? You know who my mama is? (laughs) My mama is Sarah. I'm going with Jesus. Amen? Because when he died on the cross, he settled all the accounts between me and God. He did it. And he makes a promise now. Come to me, all of you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest, even rest for your souls. Come to me. It's a promise. Will you trust me? And you say, yes, I will. And you step and you put all your trust, all of it, on Jesus. And he brings you to himself and cleanses your conscience. And you're free. Amen? In closing, I just want to ask... Is that freedom yours? Do you have it? Do you have it? I want us to just just bow our heads and I'm not going to ask anybody to raise a hand or anything like that or make yourself known. But I, I just want us all to pray. And whether you're a Christian already who has slowly started to add your own works to Jesus in your mind 
You've got an unclean conscience and instead of just going right to the cross and claiming that again, you're trying to clean up your conscience by your own doing. You're, you're, you're slowly kind of adding something to Jesus. You need to just say to God, to God I, I reject that right now and I go to Jesus Christ and claim again the blood of Christ to cleanse me from all my sin. Or perhaps you've never done that. In either case, why don't we just bow our heads and I'll give you time to just tell the Lord that you're not trusting in anything else or anybody else. You're just trusting in Jesus Christ. I'll give, I'll give you a few moments to pray. Yes, Lord, we reject everything else and every other person or God or um, being and our own ability to be good. We reject it all. And we say that we trust in Jesus Christ and Him alone for the forgiveness of our sins and the cleansing of our conscience. Work this afresh in us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.